0: Well, holy shit, I actually managed to do it. After procrastinating for ages, I finally managed to produce an audiobook version of The Lunatic Fringe Book. It's currently available on all Amazon sites, audible.com, and shortly on iTunes. And if you're the page-turning type, it's also, of course, still available in Kindle form, paperback, and uh, hardback on Amazon. Ten hours and ten years worth of Blue Skies Magazine's articles, all available to you right fucking now, including a few author's notes and even an apology or two. Enjoy. Enjoy
1: in a world mate hold up
0: we said we're done with the serious intros who said well, we did I don't remember that well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world. Hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own then. Well, technically, I already am, so. Anyway, fuck yeah. Pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. Yeah. How good. Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously, you moron. We both do. Of course. I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model, or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust. Like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot. The Crossfire 3, when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch. The JFX2 if you're looking to up your new swoop game. The Leia as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast. Or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy, specifically with wingsuiting in mind, She gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So, the equipment is top-of-the-line kick-ass stuff as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos! They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. The whole U.S. demo fleet is there, with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe, Into the Void, the magic of the internet, bringing us another guest that's uh, hit some serious heights that I want to talk about. Uh, So tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do?
2: Hey Dean, my name is Tom Noonan and I am the UPT Tandem Program Director, that's my day job, I've been working for Bill Booth and Mark Prokos here at UPT for the last seven years or so, uh, managing the Sigma Tandem Training Program. Uh, We have probably 250 examiners that are stationed all around the world that train thousands of instructors around the world, and my job is basically to keep uh, curriculum updates current, to provide educational resources, training updates, and things like that. And i uh, been in the sport now just over 20 years. I just celebrated my 20-year skydiving anniversary this past Sunday nice. on July 28th. And it's been a really uh, enjoyable last couple of days reflecting on the journey over the last 20 years, all this, uh, the amazing things I've had the opportunity to experience and to do. I can imagine. And so that's my day job. That's probably if someone were to recognize my name or knew who I was, that's probably where it would stem from originally. Just tandem skydiving has been my passion for the last 13 years. I used to work for Strong Enterprises, worked for Ted Strong. Um, and Bill Morrissey for about four years before, uh, having the opportunity to move up to Deland. I worked for Bill Coe and John LeBlanc, mm. um, at PD for three or four years. And then I've been settled in over here at UPT across the street for the last six and a half, seven years, um, managing the tandem program here for the company. So nice. that's basically my day job. And when I'm not doing that, I have a couple of side projects. Uh, I've been involved with the, uh, ever skydive program since its first inception in 2008 And I've been managing the program as a, I don't know if you want to call it a technical director, operations manager, however you want to call, um, being in charge of the daily operations since about 2012. Mm. I work with a phenomenal international team with that project. And 12 years later, we're still uh, welcomed and invited back up to the Himalaya to make extraordinary skydives. And then other than that, I have another project I'm working on with one of my best friends, teammates, uh, Paul Henry DeBar from uh, France, he and I have a company project called skydive earth, where we are taking people all around the world to all seven continents to make extraordinary skydives with us. Wow. So that's me. And that's me in three minutes or less.
0: So what you're saying is you got a lot of free time on your hands.
2: I do. Well, actually, <laughs> you know, um, Melanie Curtis, I read something recently that she posted online about the idea of following your passions. The, the general th- philosophy is that if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Sure. But her, her post and what I absolutely related to is that when you find something you're passionate about, uh, your workload actually doubles. Um, you know, you know, it doesn't feel like work, but my typical work week is 50, 60 hours a week between all the different projects, trying to manage the things that I love doing. And it's all a labor of love. I would have to say right from the beginning that the company I work for, United Parachute Technologies, and especially Bill himself, they support all these extraordinary adventures, all these extraordinary goals. Uh, I can work from anywhere around the world as long as I have a laptop in front of me. So I don't have to be sitting in an office space in Deland, Florida to get my job done. So that latitude has really allowed me to um, make the world a little smaller. Sure. And whenever possible. Um, And probably half the trips I go on, Bill joins me, which is even more incredible because he's basically, I I call him and tell him, I said, you're the Indiana Jones of skydiving. You've done all the things Indiana Jones did just with a parachute. (laughs) And uh, all I'm doing, and in turn, he's turned around and told me that I've basically picked up his mantle and I'm following in his footsteps by taking skydiving further and further off the map through tandem jumping and through the projects that we're working on.
0: Which coming from somebody like Bill, I mean, do you get higher praise?
2: You know, I have to pinch myself sometimes, you know, you you, you learn about him as a, f- a sport jumper. Sure. You learn about the three, the three ring and the throw out pilot shoot and all the evolutions of the equipment that we, uh, we have today as a result of all of his, uh, his science, his mad scientist genius that he came up with over the years, and then to become friends with him and realize he's on top of that just an extraordinary person to hang out with, uh, kind, great stories, always fun to be around, and to have him on my cell phone, you know, you see a text message come up from Bill Booth, you just kind of shake and you go, "Wow, he's not just my boss; he's actually my friend." Right. And that's actually it's really cool um, to put it in that context to someone who first met him as the you know the the inventor. It would be like a pilot meeting one of the Wright brothers, you know, like he's the the person that conceived of the things that allow you to do what you do. And thankfully in our, in our generation, they're still here. The Wright brothers are gone, but we still have a lot of the, um, original, founding members of skydiving's extraordinary uh, equipment evolution and to be able to call them friend and hang out with them. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah,
0: I mean, there, there's not that many sports around where you don't just have the opportunity to meet your heroes but go do the same shit that they're heroic for um, because, yes. you know, I mean, you can still go out and make a skydive with Bill, you know. Um, yep. When I when I started skydiving, I had the opportunity to jump with Lou Sanborn. I mean, fucking D1, for Christ's sakes.
1: Yeah, you know, amazing.
0: I, yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible and to find out that he still jumps is just epic. You know, I've never had the the privilege to meet Bill myself. Although when I was jumping at Skydive Cross Keys, we had a couple of reps that were selling the then new Microns. Um, yep. So of course everybody had to have a Micron and everybody was trying to get their deal here and there. And I ended up making a poster for him uh, that, because uh, um, I was playing around with Photoshop a lot and I called it Lord of the Three Rings. Uh, and yep. I, I took the, th- the, uh, picture of Lord of the Rings and superimposed him and a bunch of skydivers all over it just to see if I could get a deal on his gear. So yeah, Bill well, has been quite you'll famous be happy to know. World. We
2: actually have Lord of the three rings hanging up in the factory office. It's Are you conference. serious? Yep. It, it's still I there. I will take a picture of that for you and I will send that to you when we get done. I will go back over to the factory. I'll, I'll snap a photo of it and I'll text it to you.
0: Oh, holy crap. You have to, man. I made that back in 2004. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I had so much yep. fun doing that. Oh, oh man. That's that. Yeah. I got to see a picture of that. It's literally yep. been since
2: 2004 that I've seen that thing. That's so cool. Everyone that walked into the office, in the front office, right behind the front desk, that's where it sat for years. <laughs> the only, it, and unfortunately I think I'm responsible for it having been moved because I just brought Bill down to Antarctica with me where we jumped onto Union Glacier. Mm. And now that Antarctica photo of him over Union Glacier, um, that's now taken center stage. So I think that the Lord of the Three Rings might have been moved about five feet to the left, only because of Antarctica. But I, other than that, that that was the keynote piece behind the front desk for years.
0: I, I think I'm okay with it being moved for a shot of Bill <laughs> over Antarctica. I think I'm all right with that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but it, I'll send you pictures of both so you can see where they are. Oh, that's fantastic, it's man! It still, that is super still cool. has a place of honor. Yeah. Oh, that's still place cool. Of honor
0: yeah, it was actually a, a jumper you may or may not know from the old Cross Keys days named Kim Worthington. Um, yes. She was the rep at the time, and, and so I did all of that through her. Uh, and she had gotten a bunch of deals for uh, uh, a guy by the name of Steven Jackson, who I'm sure you know, and she got a, a rig yeah. for Rob Stanley. And, and so she was pushing it on all of uh, us Cross Keys loyalists at the time. Uh, and that's how that poster came about.
2: Well, Six Degrees to Kevin Bacon, Kim Worthington actually did my tunnel training uh prior to my AFF evaluation jumps, I was mm-hmm. going through AFF with skydive university at Rob Laidlaw. And I wanted to really get challenged in the tunnel before we went up and did the evaluation jumps. And I spent a half an hour with Kim in the tunnel and absolutely one of the most extraordinary tunnel flyers I'd ever seen or worked with. And yeah. uh, I credit her for not just the training that I needed, but also the confidence level. When we walked out of the tunnel she just looked at me and she said, you got this. And I went up to my evaluation jumps a couple of days later, so confident having spent that time with her. So that's a wonderful trip down memory lane for me. Thank you. How
0: cool is that, man? Yeah, Kim and I were, uh, were good friends and part of the pack that ran across Keys uh, um, from late 03 to uh, uh, 06. And it was some craziness, real fun, good times I almost remember.
2: I actually managed cross keys for one season. Um, So it would have been the 2010 season, end of 09 into 2010. Um, Cruzy, the whole crew up there, Rob, everybody. Yep. I spent a season and I go back there every couple of years to visit it's such a great part of my life and my skydiving experience. All the great memories, the, the ones that I can remember uh, from that part of my skydiving career, right. as you said.
0: Right. Yeah. A lot of a lot of the Cross Keys days are blurry, but they're blurry in a very
2: pleasant way. Yes, <laughs> and it's, it's nothing but nothing but respect and admiration. But yes.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, nothing but, and I'm I'm still surprised <laughs> that we all survived it all. But uh, yeah, it was quite the ride back then for sure. Now speaking what? of, uh, you've been in it 20 years now. You just hit your anniversary. When was the first jump? When and where was the first jump? How did you get into it?
2: So. I made my first jump July 28th, 1998, and it was at a drop zone called Skydive Pepperl. It was about an hour north of Boston. Okay. I was working for, working for a bank at the time, as a lot of people that don't have uh, career paths in, uh, in place, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I went to work for the local bank, State Street Bank. That's where most of us went in Boston when we didn't know what we wanted to do with our lives. And I remember seeing a commercial. It was Reebok Pumps. Okay. And Patrick DeGarion was in the door of a twin otter. He had a white jumpsuit on white skyboard and he leaned down and he pumped up his Reeboks, <laughs> you know, and then out he, out he went and did this absolutely insane, um, sky surf routine. And then he came in and he swooped in his landing and he dropped the board as, you know, as, as you, you do, he released the board as he surfed it and landed it. And then he walked off with his Reebok pumps, I never bought the, the Reeboks, but the, the commercial just stuck with me like, holy shit, I can't even believe something like that is possible. And I, I regret in my travels, I never got a chance to meet Patrick, but if I had, I would have been able to thank him because he was the reason I wanted to try skydiving. Mm. So I made a decision I was going to go make a tandem jump. Um, that was really at the time. I think even the internet was a little bit new back then. I just Googled Boston skydiving and Pepperell came up my home drop zone that I became my home drop zone. And I went up there and honestly, as as impressed as I was with the sky surfing, I really didn't see it being a lifestyle or a career. I kind of had this visualization that all my friends and I in our early mid-20s, we all worked nine to five jobs and on the weekends would go play golf or go bar hopping. This was going to be like my thing. I would just occasionally depart the golfing and go off at the end of the day for a skydive instead of going off to the bar. Kind of like a little personal piece of me that was just going to be for myself. So I got to the drop zone and probably as impactful as the actual experience was the camaraderie. When I saw the tandem team working together, the instructors, the videographers, um, they were like a gang, but in a good way. I mean, they just, everybody had each other's backs, everybody, the social, personal oversight. I mean, it's nothing I'd ever seen before. And I remember thinking that's such an extraordinary expression of trust and and camaraderie that I hadn't seen in my life before, anywhere. Mm. And so that was my first impression was the relationships between the people that were working together. And then we went up, we made our skydive, and as soon as the parachute opened, I knew this is what I needed to do for the rest of my life. Mm. i didn't didn't know how, didn't know what was the plan was, but I knew I wanted it to be tandem related. I knew that, I wanted to share the experience that had just been shared with me with others. Mm. And I landed with a life purpose, a life passion. I drove home. I sat on the front steps of my house, just staring. There were clouds, you know, around 13,000 feet still Mm. up in the air and just couldn't get over the fact I was just up there. So that was how it started. And I recently, I actually just posted my video of my first skydive 20 years ago. I found it, uh, digitized from an old VHS tape. I posted that on my Facebook page. It's got like, 1,300 view, or 1, views, hmm. I don't think 13 people viewed it when I first did it, you know, so it was really cool to be able to see looking back people's interest uh, when I, you know, all those years ago. Oh, for sure. Um, well,
0: and it's, it's such a, a great thing too, to be able to look back and spot this one specific moment that aimed you in this direction. I mean, how cool is that?
2: It was unbelievable. And at that point, I just got into it 110%. I I couldn't actually afford to skydive, though, even though I was working for a bank. So I saved up my money, um, maxed out all my credit cards, and I came back the following season and burned through AFF, bought all my gear, and then I made 500 jumps in the next two years. And For a New England jumper, that's pretty pretty difficult given the weather. Sure. I was there in the middle of the winter getting out at 3,000 feet in the snow just as long as the plane was going up. I just jumped my ass off as often as I could. I got my three years in the sport in, and on three years in a day, I went and got my tandem instructor rating, hmm. and that's ultimately what changed my life. I, I knew that this was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life was just show people how to be a ta- uh, basically teach people how to skydive and take them on that first introductory jump. Sure. And I I know I've put a lot of people into AFF based on my personal um, my personal experiences with them, encouragement, you know. The, If I've accomplished anything in my life, it's my ability to share with other people and Mm. inspire other people the things that inspire me. And I I hit that running with Tandem. Anyone that had a possibility of being a reasonable skydiver, the the walk-in from the field off the beer line, that was my opportunity to help them uh, build their own dreams. And I did that with every person that I was with. And I know a lot of people (coughs) responded to that and have gone on to become skydivers. And I'm really grateful for that.
0: Sure, absolutely. You know, it's kind of funny that you took so immediately to uh, tandem, uh, because I, and a fair amount of jumpers out there, um, got dragged into tandems like I was getting clawed into a dark cellar. Uh, it Kicking was, and
2: screaming. Oh, yep. my no, God. No, I don't want to do this. It was the
0: last thing in the world I wanted to do, and when I started doing tandems, this is back when the, the best gear you had were the old uh, F111, 360s, 421s, and 500 canopies on the Vector Tandem systems, which were great for the their time, but you're still hanging off your ass half upside down. And, and half of the openings were train wrecks. And I spent about 1500 jumps doing nothing but filming those. So when they came to me to, to get my tandem rating, I went, you want me to do that? Fuck off. No, I've seen how bad it goes. And (laughs) I ended up getting forced into it but I didn't have my, oh my God, this is amazing moment until I took one particular jumper and he turned it all around for me. So you kind of had a smoother ride with that because you knew right away you wanted to do that. I mean, that's cool.
2: I did. And even cooler than that, it just, again, by random chance that the owner of my drop zone that I, I learned at, her name is Fran Stromenos. Fran worked for Ted Strong. Um, back in the 1970s in Boston when he, Strong Enterprises was first in up in Boston before they moved to Orlando. Mm. And because of that, they had maintained a friendship and a relationship. So Ted would actually come up to the drop zone every year to visit his family. So I met Ted Strong early on in my skydiving career, knowing the two names, Bill Booth and Ted Strong. They were the two that mm-hmm. were responsible for tandem skydiving right. uh, development in the early 1980s. So I had the opportunity to meet him and speak to him a couple of times. We're both from Boston. Um, both, I think Irish Catholics, you know, both have good relationships with our families. We had a lot in common Mm. between the two of us. And I learned about Ted's, uh, history, how he had seen a skydiving article in sports illustrated, uh, about a gentleman named Jack Estelle and D two, and he wrote him a letter Mm-hmm. And said he wanted to learn how to skydive, and Jack invited him to, or Jacques, excuse me, Jacques invited him to the Massachusetts Sports Parachute Club out in Orange, Massachusetts, where uh, Jacques was uh, stationed. I think it was the Harvard Skydiving Club or something like oh, that. Wow. And so Ted went out and met them, and it was towards the end of the season. And as they all finished the season and were leaving, they handed Ted the wind meter, um, the anemometer, whatever you call it. Sure. And he became he became put in charge of the club. You know, so I learned, this is back in the sixties, you know, so I'm learning all these great stories from Ted and about Ted. And then he invited me down to Florida to become a tandem examiner over the years, as I became a better instructor and more Mm. experienced. And we just became friends and he, he invited me down to become a tandem examiner. And when I came down there, he offered me the job of running his tandem program right off the bat from day one being an examiner. Wow. And, uh, I said, Ted, I don't know if I can do this for you. I'm just learning how to teach tandem instruction. And now you want me to run your tandem program for you. (laughs) And he said, teaching, it's the easy part. You know, just having the right disposition, the right personality, uh, being able to to do the right things for the right reasons. That's really what matters. And I'll Mm -hmm. never forget him saying to me two very specific things that I still keep with me today. The first one was when I first met him and I became an instructor. Of course, I had some questions about certain techniques and procedures. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And he was very open and honest with me. He said, I'm going to ask you to do things as a tandem instructor. Some of them you're going to understand and agree with, and some of them you're not. And all I want you to remember is this. I have more experience than you do in this, for one. You know, that I, I know more than you. And anything I ask of you is only because I have your safety and the safety of your passengers uh, as my most important goal. You mm. know that's why I ask you to do everything. So even if you don't understand something I'm asking you to do, trust me. Mm. Trust me, I have your safety and the safety of your passengers in mind when I ask you to do that. Sure. so that really that's that's always stayed with me. And the other one, when he offered me the job, I actually turned him down, and I, I declined the opportunity to become his tandem program director because he couldn't afford me. I said, Ted, my, my life's not really fulfilling in terms of my job, but I make a lot of money, and I know what the skydiving industry pays, and especially you know, what you're offering me, and it's nowhere near what I was making. So his return pitch was, what would you pay? What would you be willing to pay? If you could have a life where every day was the best day of your life, where Monday mornings felt like Friday afternoons, where Tuesday afternoons felt like Saturday mornings. Every day of your life, you woke up, you loved what you did, and you you had a job that you traveled the world, made friends, had great adventures. What would that be willing to to you in terms of cost? And I said, Well, you can't put a price tag on something like that. Hmm. It's 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 unpriceable. He goes, Yes, there is. And he gave me back the the um the salary quote that he gave me, he said, that's what it's going to cost you. If you come down here and work for me for this dollar amount, I promise you, you will look forward to Friday or Monday mornings with the same enthusiasm. Everyone else looks forward to Friday afternoons. (laughs) He goes, you will love, you will love seven days a week of your life. Even after you've stopped working for me, if you stay in the sport, you're going to, I'll change your life. How do you say no to something like that? You don't. So I, I, I shook his hand. I accepted the job. I took about a 50% pay cut, and I have never regretted it, never looked back once.
0: The guy had a fucking genius sales pitch. Yep. But he also happened to be completely honest about it. I I agree 110%. Yep. Now, the funny thing is, um, I, 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 I disagree slightly with uh, um, Melanie's uh, quote about uh, if you do what you love for uh, a living, you never work a day in your life. This shit's hard work. The difference is- That's actually what she I, was saying.
2: She said that you work too hard when you're- <laughs> Oh, your yeah. Passion.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's really hard work, but it's it's done with passion and with love. So uh, it's I, I, I completely agree. You, you can't put it in the same category as work.
2: Yep. Oh, I haven't worked in almost 20 years. Right. Um, I'm constantly- I, How do I say that? So I, I've never felt like I've performed a job in the last 20 years. I've just sure. felt like I've been fulfilling my life's work, my life's passion- well, you put
0: out years. you put out incredible amounts of effort, but you can't refer to it as work.
2: Exactly, because work's a four letter word. Each, each week, somehow, money ends up in my checking account, so apparently, I get paid for it, and I, I can afford food and gas in my car. So All right. I'm not complaining. I know it. I,
0: I, I, it's been what 25, almost 25 years now. I've been in the sport, and I've been working in the sport for probably 23 and a half of those. And yep. every single day, I just shake my head, going, "Really." I still get to do this. Somebody's giving me money for this. Holy shit!
2: It's amazing. Cru- Cruz used to say, "Some people have to sell insurance for a living." It could be worse,
0: <laughs> Mark Cruzy. I was just having yeah. a, I was just having a talk with uh, somebody about some of his antics over the cross keys days. Oh my god, yep. <laughs> that boy! He was a lot like uh, John Edos, who I'm sure you know well. Um, yep. He just loved to stir the shit and then step back and see what happened. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Which was fantastic because there was always someone willing to oblige him for sure. So yeah, you, you started running Ted Strong stuff. Um, what did yep. that entail? I mean, were you just you weren't doing um, you know a student after student after student? Obviously, it was a much broader job
2: than that. So the the, t- the uh, title of the job was Tandem Program Director. So at the time, and this is back when, and again, just being. Uh, Openly observant. The uh, Coke and Pepsi wars, if you want to call them that, you know, when the competitive years of, at the time, Relative Workshop and Strong Enterprises. I would have loved to have been a part of that whole process back in the 1990s when both companies were introducing their technology around the world. I mean, literally it was like the great space race. Sure. Bill Booth and Ted strong circling the globe with their ideas, their equipment, their training. And in some cases it was, for example, as the story goes, Ted landed on the South Island of New Zealand. at about the same time, Bill landed on the North Island of New Zealand. So for <laughs> a long period of time, in the 1990s, it was predominantly strong gear in New Zealand and vector gear in the North Island. So right. I just keep thinking back, what an extraordinary time that must have been for these guys, and not just them, but also for their trainers like Bill Morrissey. They were traveling all over the world, introducing tandem to the world. Sure. And so at that point, it was definitely a great race between the two companies. And then over the years, you know, obviously through a lot of Bill's newer advancements in technology, the disk, the skyhook system, all the different things that apply to the Sigma. As the Sigma evolved from that competitive nature between the two companies, more and more of the market share seemed to shift to that new technology. Sure. So, around the time that I was uh, transferring or basically moving into the position of tandem program director for Strong Enterprises, Strong still had a very loyal. Um, Uh, customer base. The the equipment uh, was great equipment. I mean, in terms of malfunction rates and things like that, all the gear worked great, whether it was strong, whether it was Sigma. Uh, So my job at the time was to manage the examiner population for strong enterprises and manage those markets that they were in at the time, whether it was Finland, uh, Ecuador. I arrived at work my first day I think was August 2nd 2006. Hmm. I was sent to Ecuador 6 weeks later to run my first course and I've, I've made friends in Ecuador since then that will be lifelong friends, you know. So I managed a training program for strong enterprises and essentially became the custodian of the program that Bill Morrissey had devised and created for Ted in the 1990s. And I have what I like to think is a great analogy of this. When the air force decided they wanted to send people into space, two things had to happen. One, they had to build the vehicle to do it. Mm. And two, they had to come up with, come up with a training program for the astronauts. Sure. Bill Booth and Ted strong created the space program. They created the tandem equipment that allowed for, uh, that allowed for people to, uh, take, two people together safely under one parachute system. And then the people like TK Donnelly and Bill Morrissey, they then went on and created the training programs that would train the astronauts, so to speak, in our case, train the the tandem instructors. And they laid the foundation down uh, for the original tandem training program. And to me, Bill and Ted, what they did was so off the charts in terms of equipment development. And they are deservedly receiving of those accolades but oh, yeah. also the people that develop the training part of it too are equally as critical to it because just like the space program, you know, we learned through trial and error and sometimes heartache and tragedy when things didn't go well. Sure. And Bill Morrissey more than anyone in the universe that I've ever met has dedicated his life to the safety of others in skydiving. He eats, sleeps and drinks. Every waking moment of his life is spent on how to improve the safety of those around him. It's just how he's programmed hmm. And so I was very fortunate to um, be mentored by him. My first day on the job, he had just retired. He said, look, kid, he called me kid because I was in my 30s. He (laughs) said, look, kid, I'm uh, still in Florida here. I'm still around. If you'd like my help, I'm happy to give you my guidance. But if you want to run and do your own thing, God bless you. Ask me if you ever have any questions. And so I pulled up a chair and said, have a seat, Bill. (laughs) One, there's no no point in, in reinventing the wheel, and two, given everything you've done, I'd be foolish not to want to um, not to want to share in your knowledge base. And even today, now, what, fifteen years later, every time I have a UPT Sigma Examiner course that I run here in Florida, if Bill is in town, I bring him up. I let him talk to the examiners. It's not about equipment, whether it's Sigma or Strong. It's all about the knowledge, and our guys just absolutely love hearing from him hearing about his philosophies, and so he's 81 years old now. He's just celebrated his 81st birthday at Skydive wow. Chicago, <laughs> and um, he'll be here in September for my next examiner course, and he, still in the game, still providing value, still making 100 skydives a year. Well, I mean, I'm so, guessing
0: uh, he was the man behind uh, the dreaded uh, uh, sidespin video we all watched and, and learned from, yes. and had to have been. I mean, there's not a tandem instructor out there that hasn't sat through that and just gotten the cold sweats. Uh, and, it, and that's uh,
2: still Our training program today, that's his, his, um, his contribution that will stand for all time. You know, he, he personally put his own body and safety, uh, in jeopardy to figure the, figure it out. And as he, I believe he explained it in the video, you know, when it first happened, no one knew what caused it. Sure. And he went to Finland. He investigated the incident that occurred. He came back and he made it his life's mission to not just figure out what caused it but then to figure out a plan, how to fix it. Sure. And did. And he presented that at the symposium in 96 or 97. And that's still the standard today that we use for the training. And also to give uh, TK Donnelly credit where credit is due as well as another founding member of this TK's philosophy was also equally as critical. He said, let's also figure out how to prevent it. You know, that's sure. Understand the dynamics of the exits, understand the dynamics of how we enter the airflow. So, two of the two of them together really changed the dynamic of how we taught tandem training. And then I sure. was given the privilege to become the custodian of that knowledge for strong enterprises and continue to share that knowledge into the next generation of instructors and examiners that we trained.
0: Which is epic. And and of course, both sides of that coin are, are hugely important. Fixing it if it happens, because, I mean, we all know shit happens, uh, even to the best tandem instructors. Uh, and uh, obviously prevention uh, is the big thing. That's the thing I always taught my uh, AFS students was the best way to fix a malfunction is to do a gear check and and uh, fix it on the ground. You know, same, yeah. same basic mentality. Fix the problem before it happens by doing these things. But obviously they were, uh, you know, on unproven ground and had to do this you know literally from the ground up and holy shit yep it's no small feat because so much of it goes into it i mean anybody that's ever seen the old uh, uh, tandem malfunction tree with the old vectors whoo yep. holy shit it wasn't there uh, and I, I i may be talking out of my ass but wasn't one of the branches on that uh, uh tree didn't it just dead end
2: Yep. <laughs> At that point, you pulled all your handles. Just look to the horizon. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. That, that, that we have a solution for everything, and actually, that the two. Uh, Key points here are one, Bill Booth likes to make a joke today that his his malfunction tree was one page, that he built the Sigma, gave me the, the reins of the program, and now we have a three-page malfunction tree. <laughs> and it's not that I created two more pages of malfunctions. It's just that as we made more complex equipment, um, the necessity of more complex procedures uh, necessitated itself. And if anybody listening to this is a tandem instructor, this is something I tell everyone. Our standard procedures, including our minimum exit altitudes and minimum decision altitudes, in concert with all of our procedures, everything that can go wrong on a tandem jump, if you follow our standard procedures and our emergency procedure tree, there is enough time for four things to happen on every one of those scenarios. The first one is to take a breath and calm, calm yourself. Yep. The second one is to assess the situation. The third one, determine the corrective action and fourth, execute it. Most people are aware of the assess, determine, execute, but there is enough time and it's a critical part of training is enough time to calm yourself. The Portuguese Air Force has a term they call light a cigar. One of my examiners is a uh, F-16 pilot and he mm. says, we're trained. We're trained that in the event of any emergency, the first thing we do is light a cigar and uh, not, not literally, but figuratively. Sure. And that, that translates to take a breath. Oh, yeah. Collect yourself. You're in in a a critical situation. Take a moment and calm yourself before you act.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny because uh, um, I've had the opportunity to train quite a few pilots on different aircraft for flying jump operations. And I'll always ask the question, what are you going to do if uh, this emergency or that emergency comes up? And they'll, of course, go with the answer uh, that they think is most relevant. And my response is no. The very first thing you're going to do is absolutely nothing. Don't do a thing. Think about it. Take a deep breath and then move on. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear I got that right.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely.
0: It's damn so, important. Yeah, so that
2: was, that was my time with Strong. Um, I spent three and a half years there with them and my God, I am so grateful for having had the opportunity, not just to get a chance to work for Ted, but to get to know him as a human being. Sure. Even today, um, you know, that expression, what would Jesus do? Hmm. Um, my deviation of that is what would Ted do? Would Ted do? Wwtd? <laughs> right. And anytime I'm presented with any kind of uh, tandem skydiving decision-making process, and I'm not sure of the outcome or what my path might be, I always think and put it in the context of how would how would Ted have handled this? How would he have um, viewed this? Approached it dispassionately, professionally, um, thinking about both sides, you know, and not acting quickly or brashly. And that's really served me well over the years Sure, um, to be able to have learned from him as a human being, truly one of the most extraordinary human beings I've ever met in my life. Hmm. And to have the, had that opportunity to spend so much time with him. We were, we worked together on a day-to-day basis for three and a half years and I didn't know how good I had it until, you know, the the economy crashed, Uh, you know, back that, um, the big short, all those movies about the economy tanking. I knew when all that happened, that my job was redundant at the factory because Ted could do the same thing I was doing. He had been doing it for, you know, 30 years. So I ended up getting downsized. I want to say like August or September of 2009. When the market crashed, they just couldn't afford to have two tandem program directors at the company, Ted and myself. Sure. So I went to New Zealand for the season, went down to uh, Endzone in Queenstown, Okay. I, which was one of our companies that we worked with. And there are some of the most extraordinary skydiving talent on the planet in New Zealand down there. Oh, they're yeah. just all, all they do all day, every day is skydive yep. and they're just so talented. So, um, confident, competent. It was just such a great experience. I did 800 tandems in about four months. Yeah. It's a machine. Yeah. yeah. I was waking up, rolling out of bed. My right arm would go up like I was throwing a drug. You know, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be ordering dinner. I'd be throwing the drug. I mean, it just, you're you just get so into a rhythm. I did 27 tandems one day. It yeah. was my, 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 you know, for cross keys that turned out to be an average Saturday, but sure. at the time for me, that was, you know, a huge amount of tandems to do. Oh yeah. So I, I had to, Made some great lifelong friends in New Zealand down there. Uh, Really got to be the full-time tandem instructor again that I wanted to be. And then Cruzy contacted me and said, hey, uh, would you like to come up to uh, Cross Keys next season? He had talked to John, and John and Mark had um, invited me up there to come manage the drop zone for the summer. And one of the things that I love about them, you know, you mentioned John and and the the philosophies. We were going – to meet John somewhere for a meeting or an interview or something. And there was a piece of trash on the ground. Mm. So as we were walking by, I just picked it up and put it in the trash barrel. And unbeknownst to me, that was actually a test. (laughs) You know, just to see if, if if you have the one, the observation, like and the care of the, of the surroundings on the drop zone, you know, do you have that, um, do you have that uh, willingness to, Reach down, pick up a piece of trash, and put it in the in the trash barrel, or you're just going to walk by it and leave it for somebody else. Sure. I mean, these these guys were brilliant beyond their years when it came to that stuff.
0: Yeah, you know, I've I've got my own uh, slightly entertaining uh, Edo story about how I got hired there. I actually was in uh, Vegas working for a guy by the name of Eddie Carroll. Um, And so Eddie, yeah. Yeah. So I had left Eddie and Eddie and I weren't on the best of terms at the time. As a matter of fact, he couldn't stand me. And, uh, uh, Eddowes actually gave him a call, uh, and asked him about me because I had, uh, put in a, a call to Cross Keys trying to get out there. And, and so Eddos decided to call him and find out who I was. And, uh, Eddie Carroll didn't have a whole lot of nice things to say about me. And, uh, at <laughs> the end of the, at the end of the phone conversation, John went, okay, great. I'm going to hire him. <laughs> <laughs> figured anybody, awesome. did, if anybody Eddie didn't like, he was happy hiring. So he hired me on the spot <laughs> simply because somebody else talked shit about me.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Brilliant. So,
0: so your summer in cross keys, man, that must've been quite the, uh, the gear change from New Zealand.
2: It was, you know, in one capacity, it was actually quite similar in that everybody was there to do their job. I loved the team mentality. Everybody not just relied on each other at cross keys, but they held everybody to the same high standard. Mm. If you slacked, you were called out on it. You know, you guys were a team. We would do 55, uh, King air loads in a day, you know, just the plane would start six 7 o'clock in the morning and it wouldn't shut down until 7 PM. And if you weren't hustling back in off the field, you'd get your ass chewed out. If you didn't have your rig laid down quickly for the Packers, because they needed to get those rigs ready for the next jump, you get your ass chewed out. And I really enjoyed and thrived working in that environment with those guys and growth team. That team, that environment of we're all accountable to each other and the weak link slows it down for everybody. You oh, know. yeah.
0: And um, in my cross keys time, it was, it was that as well, uh, because it was just as insanely busy. We were running a Skyvan yep. and a Twin Otter at the time. And of course, it was turn and burn all day long. But, uh, and I'm sure it was uh, the same for you. It, when the drop zones finished, um, everybody stuck around. It was, it was more of yep. a commune than a drop zone. Uh, it was yes. very much a uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week until the snow started falling. Yep. Which was amazing. I mean, I, I, I'll i never be able to repeat those times. I don't think I could physically handle it again uh, between the jumping and everything else. But uh, what an amazing place. I mean, it was just incredible.
2: I'm grateful I had the experience. I couldn't keep up with that pace now at 45. No. I, and there are guys that do, like, Range Luda is still a tandem machine He's after all these monster. years. He's a monster.
0: He's a monster. Yep. It's not I even mean, all
2: those, It's It's unreal how... He's over 30,000 skydives now, and every one of them, he's still just as crisp and clean and precise as he was 10 years ago. You know, it's amazing. Oh, yeah.
0: He was he was jump for jump with us uh, in, you know, 03, 04, 05, just going balls out and uh, yep. not considered a young skydiver then, and he's still yep. going just as hardcore.
2: Yep. And he loves it. He does it because he wants to do it. He absolutely yeah. loves it. Oh, yeah. Yep
0: which is fucking amazing.
2: So you, you, you do a summer in cross keys and
0: then what comes next?
2: So my plan at that point was, okay, this is my life. And it was, it was an exciting, attractive life to consider. I'm going to winter in New Zealand. I had a secured slot down at end zone. I worked really well with them. They liked how I worked. I got along great with the staff and the team, still great friends today. Hmm. And so I was going to be that, uh, New Zealand, uh, New Jersey skydiver. I was going to summer up in cross keys go down to New Zealand every winter. Sure. And I was set to do that. I had booked my ticket to go back and my phone rang. And my phone rang and it was a rusty vest from PD. Mm. And I've always maintained a great relationship with the people that I work with up here. Uh, one of my closest friends, Albert Birch, told in the marketing department of PD at the time, he's now the marketing manager. Uh, they were looking to fill a marketing position there. Mm. And Albert and I had just bumped into each other at the USPA board meeting. I was the regional director. So we were talking at the bar and um he let rusty know that i was available to come down and i remember i was sitting in my fifth wheel at cross keys on the phone with with rusty at pd and they made the offer for me to come down to florida and i was really torn because one i mean it's it's performance designs sure so the opportunity to work for the greatest parachute manufacturer on the planet literally sure. and I am actually having a shitload of fun right now going back and forth between crosskeys and New- the, the idea of New Zealand crosskeys, New Zealand crosskeys just was really attractive to oh, me. Yeah. But then I thought about it and I realized, you know what my, the adult in me, realized that it's better to have a medical plan and a dental plan from a company, you know, than <laughs> having to pay for it myself or worse, you know, have to ask friends if I, if I break a tooth or something right. to lend me money to go to the dentist, you know, and I realized that from the long-term perspective of a career, as I was getting older, that I really wanted to be Back in the manufacturing side, I have a degree in marketing and it was a marketing position, so mm. to me it was just a perfect opportunity to get back into the sport full time sure and I'd always wanted to move to Deland from strong enterprises at the time and in, in late 2000s you know strong enterprises was more focused on military equipment round parachutes um, they weren't as actively involved in the sport market the the harness containers the uh, the sport canopies and I really was still out of adamantly excited about parachute development and sport jumping i i skydived every weekend i could so i thought you know what it's a better place for me to be is back in florida and to land and have access to these extraordinary people and extraordinary products and so i relinquished relinquished my posi- uh my slot in new zealand and instead of uh, flying back down there i drove my rv back to florida um, and went to work for pd i want to say around november 2010 and i only remember that because. I started on a Thursday and that Saturday was the last marathon keys boogie that skydive Sebastian had put on. So I got to do 20 or 30 tandems over marathon key oh, that wow. weekend, you know, driving 10 hours down to the keys and back each sure. way. And so that started my time at PD and, I'll keep revisiting the idea that I'm the luckiest kid in the sandbox. Just a lot of it has to do with just bumping into the right people at the right time. I met a, I met a guy named Bill Coe at Performance Designs. All
1: right.
2: So Bill Coe is actually the owner president of the company. Everybody's familiar with with John LeBlanc. And, and sure. John is brilliant. He's an extraordinary communicator. He's designed all the recent cutting-edge canopies. He's still an active skydiver himself. Everybody knows John LeBlanc and and the opportunity to know him has equally been rewarding over the years, but not a lot of people know Bill Coe on a personal level. Sure. He's behind the scenes. He's the one that conceived of performance designs. He started it down, I want to say, Miami back when he was working for Eastern Airlines. Um, And he and Bill Booth set out and started the, the Bill Coe built all the first Tandem parachutes for Bill Booth that allowed tandem to to exist, you know. Wow. And so I got to know Bill Coe as a person over that three year period, and I'm still great friends with him today. I don't see him very often these days because obviously he's busy running a company of 200 people um, and all the projects that he's working on. But of yeah. all the things that I'm grateful for in my time at PD was that I got a chance to get to know him, and that we've maintained a friendship over the years. We've gone paddle boarding together. Um, he came over to watch the Super Bowl a few years ago with Julie and I and his daughter, Lorelei. And it's just to have these moments with this absolutely extraordinary human being who's so busy and has so many people that rely on him. Sure. He gets to squeak out a little bit of time. Like he'll still make time for someone like me, you know? Um, so that's, I always tell people that anyone that goes to work for PD and that when they transfer in there or over there, I always tell them make a point to get to know Bill, stick your hand out, shake his hand talk to him, get to know him. He is just inspiring, extraordinary, and ultimately just a really cool guy to hang out with.
0: And ridiculously accomplished with the most impressive, you know, parachute company on the planet.
2: And he's honestly, I would have to say between him and Bill Booth, they're two of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And how I explain the level of genius of Bill Coe, I brought him to Nepal a few years ago, um, 2013, let's say. And he called me into his office to look at different headlamps that he wanted to bring with him. And he showed me two different styles of headlamps and the batteries that were to go with them. And there was three different power settings, low, medium and high. And I think they're called lumens Mm, is the amount of the lumens in the burning versus the power. He asked me to, to, to help him figure out which one is better. And he proceeded to tell me, that based on their their lumen consumption and the voltage of the batteries, that this one would last X amount of minutes on low, X amount of minutes on medium, and X amount of minutes on high for both of them. And I looked at him and I said, Did you just do that in your head? And he just kind of smirked at me. And I just put my hands in my face and I went, I can't even spell the word lumen. Right. And you can do something like that and be able to determine at an instant, the math behind how long each one of these batteries will last at the different power settings—just absolutely brilliant human being. Yeah,
0: and it's there's there's something about uh, being around someone that just instantly makes you feel like an idiot—that is both uh, repelling and amazing at the same time. You're like, oh my. God. God, I,
2: yeah, inspiring, yes. Yeah, it's quite,
0: yeah, it's, it's, it's inspiring and extremely humbling. I had a, a very yeah. close friend by the name of Zach that was the same way. You'd be talking about something random and he would just give you the background to all of it off the top of his head. And you'd just sit there almost drooling because you felt like such an idiot.
2: Yeah, <laughs> So that was basically the, um, my three years at PD in the marketing department were a lot of fun. Worked with a great group of people, uh, Carl Meyer, Albert Birchtold, uh, Alex Bittner, um, Ella Rand. we had this great marketing department, Justin Carmody, um, Scott. uh, He's going to kill me. I can't remember his last name because I haven't seen his last name uh, pop up. Mm. But anyway, we were this this great team and everybody had phenomenal ideas. Sometimes you got your ideas voted off the island. Other times your (laughs) ideas were the ones you went with. And while I can take absolutely no credit. For any of the design criteria of the Peregrine,
1: mm.
2: I'm the one that came up with the color scheme the nice. black end cells, the white, and the black uh, cross bracing. Nice. That's all <laughs> in my three years at, at PD. I can say that I, I designed the color scheme of the Peregrine and I came up with the name Proxy for the wingsuit canopy.
0: Oh, see, that's fucking cool though. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you left your hopefully, mark. Hopefully, I could shoot it a little bit more than that, but at least those are two things that I know I can take away with and say when I see the proxy logo. I'm like, yep, that was my name, and and the reason for the the color scheme was that I thought that it would be cool that if we if we ended up going on with like different iterations, you know, like a Mach two, Mach three version of them, mm. that you could change the outer cells to blue or orange or red or whatever it was, and just by looking up at the canopy you would know what version you might be jumping. Oh, you know? that's pretty so, cool. Yeah, I thought that was you know, a potential if they were ever going to make you know, version 2, version 3, version 4. You could always have just the same color pattern but just a different you know, accent on the end cells. And that would tell them what they were looking at from the ground. I thought that was pretty smart. No,
0: that, that really is. Absolutely. I'll tell you what. Well, uh, so you, you, you did PD and then you ended up with Uncle Bill.
2: How did the how, yeah. did, how did Uncle Bill happen? So, okay, it, for those that haven't been to Deland, the, the performance designs factory is probably hundred and fifty yards from UPT. They're <laughs> around the corner from each other, but they're literally in a within a stone's throw of each other. Mm. So my passion's always been tandem skydiving, the right. safety aspect, the training aspect of it. And I'd sneak over to UPT on my lunch breaks. I knew they didn't have uh, there was a vacuum of that person at UPT at the time. I'd had a really good relationship with Mark Prokos at the time. Mm. I had come over at one point and said, "Look, USPA does AFF standardization meetings every 2 years. We should really do that for UPT. We're now 70-80% of the global market. Sure. We really should we should get ahead of this before it becomes a problem, you mm. know, the the standardizing of what we do." So, Mark and I worked together on a bi-coastal standardization meeting, one in DeLand during the Skydive Expo and one at Skydive Paris out in California for the West Coast. And that was probably 2011 or 12 while I was working for uh, uh, for PD in the marketing department. And so I would eat up my vacation time, you know, was happy to do. And I'd go off with Mark or for Mark and do these, uh, these seminars for the company. And the more I got involved, the more I realized I wanted to be over there. Mm. And at, at the same time, I think that the busier the company got, you just mushroomed in terms of a manufacturing process. You know, parachute manufacturers are no different than alarm clock manufacturers. You manufacture a widget yeah. and it has a, it has a supply and demand. And as that demand goes up, your workforce has to increase, your material acquisition costs or acquisitions increase, and the workflow that that drives from the top down the general management of the company just it explodes when that happens and as a company before i, I, I went there they were thriving in 2011 12 13 just blowing up with orders and mark as a general manager was also the tandem program director
1: hmm.
2: and I, I think he realized that we needed a dedicated resource for this and his role and responsibility as a general manager was such that he couldn't dedicate the necessary time for both. And there's a little pizza shop in the land called New York Pizza. Uh, Bill Morrissey is still one of my best friends. Um, he and my girlfriend Julie and I, we when he would come visit, we would go to this little Italian restaurant called New York Pizza, just mm. off of uh, York Ave. And we're sitting down having dinner, and who walks in and sits down in the booth right behind us? It's Mark uh, and Candy Prokos. Huh. You know, small small town. Sure. So, Mark turns over, taps me on the shoulder, and he says, "I need to hire you." <laughs> and I looked at him, and I went, "I need to work for you." Awesome, <laughs> that works well, right? And so, we um, this was probably December of 2013, and we established a phenomenal, simple transition. End of 2013, um, my departure from PD was completed, and I started the first of the year 2014 at UPT, and. I've been there ever since. Been managing the Tandem program, and I think one of the greatest compliments I can give Mark as a manager. And this might sound odd, seeing as obviously I work for him, but this is it's true. The first thing he said to me is, he said, "Just do what you think you need to do. I've hired you to do your job. You know, yeah. you don't have to run everything past me. You have you're you're an adult. You're mature. You know what needs to be done, so go do it." And he's always left me to do the job that he felt that I believe needed to be done. And as a, as a manager, I've been micromanaged in in my life and I've been managed in this capacity. And I think that from this capacity, I think one of his greatest strengths as a leader is that he, in every capacity that I can see in our, in our facility, our organization, he hires the best people in the world to do the job. Sure. And then he cuts them and he cuts them loose to do the job, which is the way it should be. Yeah, absolutely. From our engineers to our rigging department, to our marketing department, to our tour, everything that we do. I mean, I literally work with the best people in the world and I, and I shake my head sometimes going, how did I land here? Sure. Do I fit into fit into this? Am I Am I at this level with these people? And I like to think that I am from time to time, but it really is amazing. We have the most talented rigging staff on the planet. Our engineers are just absolutely brilliant. Uh, and they, every day they come in energized to improve every process, every manufacturing thing we do, our production manager, um, first one in the beginning of the day, last one to leave at the end of the day. And I get to be a part of that. that sure. That's pretty amazing.
0: You know, it's it's kind of funny too, because uh, um, especially when you're in a, a good situation like you're in, I love being surrounded by people that are just incredible at their jobs. And I love knowing I'm not the best. I absolutely love it because it means I've always got something to shoot for. And I've always got somebody that I can not necessarily look up to, but kind of take tips from and, and get a, you know, a little bit of their edge. And it's, uh, it's just an amazing thing. When you walk in every day, going all right, who's gonna who's gonna impress me today and show me up today? I think it's fantastic.
2: And, and the best part is, like, I have to bring my A game here. Yeah. I can't dial it in when I'm here. When I'm representing this company and representing our products and the people that I work with, I have to be the best version of me that I can be every single day. Because otherwise, just like the Cross Keys mentality, you know, you, you, you take these work ethics lessons with you. I'm part of a, of a bigger picture. And if I don't do my job to the level they expect me to do it, then they can't do their jobs to the level that they need to do it.
0: Absolutely. Well, and especially when we're talking about a sport where it's, I mean, it's, this is life and death here. Uh, when you boil it yep. down to its basics, it doesn't get more important than that. It really doesn't. Uh, and especially yep. when it comes to something like tandems, it's not just the, the life or death of a skydiver. It's the life or death potentially of, you know, Joe Blow off the street and the, the yep. ramifications that that has. Someone that doesn't maybe fully understand the world that he's briefly stepping into, you know, to make that tandem, um, the, the importance of that cannot be overstated, uh, not to mention on the luckily very rare occasions that something goes wrong with a tandem, it's a big fucking deal. You know, I mean, it's, it's horrifying on a whole different level to all of us. So the safety of them more than anything else is paramount. It really is.
2: I mean, absolutely. And, my general practitioner doctor will tell you that uh, he's always telling me to relax and calm down and take like my, my prescription from my, my yearly checkup is to go take a vacation. <laughs> he's always telling me now my, my blood pressure is fine, but I'm, I live with a constant stress in my life and I, I accept it. And I, 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 I it's part of just who I am and what I do. But I take every instructor and every passenger's safety personally. Sure. Like I am personally and passionately invested in the safety of everyone that I work with. And when there are accidents, it affects me personally. And especially knowing that we can prevent them, it's even harder to absorb. So I do carry a bit of a burden on my shoulders. Um, my girlfriend refers to it sometimes as my Atlas complex, because mm-hmm. I carry the weight. I, I tend to carry the weight of the tandem world on my shoulders, but it's just, it's how I'm programmed. It's in my DNA. And I learned it from the best, you know, from Ted Strong. Bill Morrissey, T.K. Donnelly, Mark Prokos, and ultimately Bill Booth um, here and now. Bill's advocacy of what I do is so extraordinary to try to process the idea that the gentleman who was responsible for all of this has entrusted me with the future of that program. And, And every time he's in town, he visits my classes. I always bring him in to talk to the class. And he always says that He's done all he can do with the gear, you know, tandem skydiving. We fixed all the major problems with the equipment in terms yeah. of op- open containers and drogue fall. Now we have a disc, broken RSL risers. Now we have a Collins lanyard, unstable reserve deployments. Now we have a skyhook. You know, the gear, the, the big gear issues, he resolved. And Anything he can do now is only going to make a minor impact, no pun intended, a minor impact <laughs> um, on, on the incident rate reduction in sure. terms of skydiving. What's gonna make a drastic continued reduction is now on our shoulders as trainers, is putting better examiners in the field, or not, I don't want to say better, putting more informed, more educated examiners in the field, training instructors to a standard of of, of understanding of the processes that we use. And we, the training side of it, are the next big step in incident reduction. So that's a huge responsibility to have. And he endorses it a hundred percent. And we were up in Canada somewhere a few years ago, Trenton, Canada, giving uh, presentations. And that's one of the things that I do is I travel and I give safety seminars. Like I'm going to be in Australia for a month, traveling all over the country, giving these educational programs uh, that I've created on exit technique and drogue throwing and safety seminars. So imagine your boss, in my case, Bill Booth, sitting front and center as I'm standing up in front of 200 people to go over a safety seminar that I had just written. That's right. a pretty daunting task. You yeah. know, he is, he's my employer. He's my friend. He's still Bill Booth. Yeah. He's still the, you know, he's still the, 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 one that created all of this. And so, you know, you take a deep breath, you put your best foot forward, you speak from the heart and when it ended, he said it to me a few times since, but this was the first time he'd ever actually had a chance to see me work. He pulled me aside and he said. I'm so happy that you work for me. He said, you're the best in the world at what you do. And he prides himself on everybody here being the best in the world at what they do. You know, that's why this company is so successful. Sure. And he said, there's nobody in the world better than you doing what you're doing right now. And I'm so proud to have you on my team. I mean, I was holding back the tears because here's my idol. I'm trying to keep it together because he's still my boss. But on the inside, the validation that I got from him that he recognized the value of what I was providing his company and providing him as a person, helping to keep his, his instructors and his gear safe out there. Yeah. I'll remember that moment for the rest of my career, probably the rest of my life. Cause it really was everything coming full circle and what I had done in the sport.
0: Well, and you damn well should. I mean, uh, like you said, at the end of the day, they've pretty much gotten the gear down to it being as safe as it can possibly be without just something completely different, you know, until gravity boots come along. Um, It's all down to pretty much human factors. I mean, really, there's not too many times when it wasn't either, um, you know, something along the lines of weather or just a a human fuck up that, you know, ends up being tragic. It's rarely ever the gear anymore.
2: Exactly. And again, you're a pilot, so you can appreciate this more than most. The way we explain things is I, I use the aircraft context a lot. Airplanes crash more often than not because pilots fly them into the ground. Yeah, You know, it's a, it's a human error, a human failure at some point. If, if the plane crashes because it ran out of fuel, yeah, it might have, the, the fuel might be the root cause with pilots' failure to check that there was adequate fuel for the flight is the, you know, the preceding component to that. And so when I train people today, I use the example that Incidents and accidents are always the logical outcome of a series of illogical acts or decisions. Absolutely. And if we think about it beforehand, we can remove or correct most, if not all of them to prevent that from happening. And I think it's the NTSB that has a philosophy that every aircraft accident is usually the result of six or seven mistakes or bad decisions. Sure. And if you change, if you change even just one of them, the outcome becomes positive. Oh yeah! It's no longer uh, no longer an accident. So that's what I just try to get people um, to think about as tandem instructors and as tandem trainers. That there's nothing new up there. We're doing the same thing over and over again. And what happens is we get bored, we get tired, we get um, brain drain, whatever it is, and our performance declines. And when we see these incidents, it's typically a failure of a human function that had been performed correctly before. And just in that one instance, for whatever the reason was, the failure to perform it correctly was the root cause of that, uh, that incident. That oh occurred. yeah.
0: Complacency is the biggest killer in yep. aviation and well in almost anything anymore. I mean, as soon as you get complacent, um, more than likely, especially in skydiving, it's going to jump up and teach you a lesson. And sometimes those yep. lessons are pretty harsh. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's the greatest philosophy in the world you could possibly have fix it before it breaks. Yep. So um, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit cause I'm dying to ask you questions about Everest. You've been going Absolutely. to Nepal. You've been going to Nepal for a long time.
2: Since 2008. Yes.
0: So uh, Nepal has been, and I'm sure you've probably read the book. Um, I think it was 1998. I read the book into thin air. Yes. Uh, I knew that something was wrong inside my head as I was reading that book because the worse the book got, the more I wanted to go see that mountain. I don't know why. But I've been, it's been on my bucket list forever. Now I don't intend to try and go climb the damn thing because I don't have that much money and hopefully I have, uh, you know, enough common sense to know I'd be probably the one in five that didn't make it back down. But I'm going to be going this year to see that thing face to face. And I know you've not only been jumping over Everest, but you've done the hike to base camp. God, how many times now?
2: Um, I've been there 15 or 16 times. I've probably done the base camp trek five or six. Wow. It's typically an extra week uh, that adds to our program to go up and do that. Sure. And when my friends want to go, I will take them up there. But at this point, and I I feel terrible saying it because it is such a privilege, but after having done that enough times, I look at it and go, you know what? Next time, I'm just going to fly up there in a helicopter. Right. Well, it's it's, it's an eight minute helicopter ride versus an eight day walk. Sure.
0: Uh, Well, that's a, that's a lot like my mentality when I lived in Vegas was after a few years, it was, all right, guys, here's the keys to my car. The strip is that way. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So, um, and I want to talk about Skydive Everest as well, but the hike, is it as hard as everybody says?
2: Negative. It is. So it's trekking as opposed to climbing. Right. And the things that we can do to make it easier on ourselves and harder on ourselves, there's no one specific body type, age, or health level that will dictate your ability to navigate the process. Mm. What it really comes down to is your ability to manage discomfort because it is a little uncomfortable. Sure. We're in cold, cold, damp places. Uh, We're um, not always Accessible to showers every day. Sure. Usually there is, but the higher you go, the less showers become available. But a perfect example would be this We give you a backpack. We right. tell you only put, only put your jacket and maybe some sunblock and a bottle of water in your backpack. And you, you put it on and it's nice and light. And then you decide you want to put a, a book or your laptop or your big heavy camera. Now you've got a 20 pound backpack on your back. Right. That backpack has an exponential effect on your physical well being and your mental anguish the higher you get right we also offer walking sticks well nobody wants to use walking sticks because you look foolish right in the normal context of of life sticks like that are for skiing not for walking well you right. know what on the hills those same walking sticks take the about half the pressure off your knees and your ankles sure people with walking sticks tend to enjoy their uh, treks more than people that try to tough it out and the most common cause of an I won't mention any names because you probably know one or two of them, but the most common cause of problems up there is going too quick. Sure. You, you will feel good when you get to the destination, but it is after you get there that your body starts to deteriorate. So typically people that are fit and in good shape, they want to be the first ones up. It's a very competitive nature. We tell everybody walk slowly, trek slowly, pace yourself. Yes, you could probably jog. Yes, you could probably fast walk, but take it slow Mm. because going from an 8,000-foot elevation to a 12,000-foot elevation in one day, that's a large gap of oxygen pressure differential. Yeah, it is. So we've had a couple of times some of our mutual friends have rushed up the mountain and then they end up altitude sick the following morning because they felt great getting up there and they want to succeed. They want to be, oh, I feel great. And it's kind of like this I don't know um I don't even know how to describe it this this um great race if you will. Sure. But nobody wants nobody wants to be the last one up the mountain. Sure. So what I do is I'm always the last one up the mountain. <laughs> nobody knows? has to worry about being last, it'll be me, but I'm really being sneaky about it because I know the slower I take the slower I am, the longer I take, right. the better I'm going to feel the next morning. Sure. So I always invite invite people to join me in the back of the bus and take their time and enjoy the walk sure
0: well the first thing i did when i decided i was going to do it and started planning out uh, uh dates and times and stuff was make sure i took way too much vacation time and then went out and bought some hiking sticks
1: <laughs> yep perfect
0: <laughs> yeah no no No. i don't care if i'm the, the coolest cat walking up that hill my only intention is to make it there so uh, uh i don't care how goofy i look they can put me in a pink tutu if it'll get me up there
2: and what's interesting is everybody's body chemistry is different. I am certainly not a doctor, so don't take this as any medical advice. But no two people react the same way in terms of their hydration levels, their susceptibility to altitude sickness, the level of which they will get altitude sick. Everyone gets a little hypoxic. And you know this as a pilot. There's a mild level of hypoxia every jump run at 13,000 feet. Absolutely. You know? and. The longer you stay up there, if you're circling, if you're being held for traffic, the more hypoxic the people are going to become. And it's no different in, in these tracks. You're going up to the same altitudes. And some people will try to cheat and take uh, pills like Dymox that are essentially medications to help offset the um, the effects of hypoxia. But if you take it before you go up there, you're essentially masking the problems, you're hiding the potential um, symptoms that might uh, affect you at a higher altitude. So we always discourage people from taking Dymox or any other pills like that, unless they start to feel symptomatic and feel as though they're getting um, altitude sick. Hmm. But no two bodies are the same. We don't stay up there long enough to generate new red blood cells. That's what the misconception. People think that your your body builds more red blood cells as the higher you go, but it simply doesn't. It takes two to three months of living at those altitudes for your body to recognize it needs more oxygen sponges in the blood flow, mm. and it starts to build more red blood cells. So the short term effects of what happen is you get a bit of a hypoxic or a hyperventilating effect. Your body starts breathing faster because it needs to pull in more oxygen, because there's the same percentages of oxygen. I want to say it's 28% oxygen, 71 nitrogen, and 1% trace gas. Hmm. The same percentages, but less physical molecules to absorb or to inhale. So your body's working harder to breathe in more repetitions. And then the, the red blood cells that you do have go through a chemical composition change if you think about the sponge that you wash your dishes with that sponge can only absorb so much water right. well those red blood cell sponges can chemically alter themselves to take in more oxygen molecules per cell as that transition occurs so the longer you're up there the body realizes that your O2 levels are being sustained at that lower O2 availability starts to change the, the composition of the red blood cells to be more absorbent. Mm. The combination of that more absorbing red blood cell collection plus the increase in breath rate tends to offset the difference between uh, getting altitude sick or not. And then, of course, you need to lubricate everything by drinking lots of water. Sure. So that's kind of the philosophy and approach that we take with all of that, but still. One in 10 people, one in 20 people will wake up the next morning with a headache because you're living at 12,000 feet for 24 hours. Your body gets into a little bit of a shock state. It hmm. realizes that things haven't stabilized, and then it starts to um, to basically retransition itself into that acclimatization phase. And then sure. a, day or so, a day or so later, you start to feel better.
0: Well, that's what everybody's told me uh, uh, that I know that have done the trek is if you wake up in the morning and you're not feeling it, stay right where you're at. Just relax. Enjoy. Uh, Obviously, um, a bunch of the people and myself, I have zero schedule, so I can quite literally take as long as I want uh, to get there. And in fact, was planning on maybe doing the Annapurna Circuit prior to uh, as oh, a, fantastic. a bit of a dry run. Um, uh, but, uh, Everest obviously is the, is the goal. And I'd imagine, cause you've been there as many times from the ground, is it just, it, it's gotta be just spectacular to be standing there right next to the Kumbu Ice Falls and looking up at the peak. I know you can't see much from base camp, but there is that side mountain that you can go up, that you get an unobstructed view, right?
2: Right. There's really, um, from the trekking perspective, there's three different Extraordinary visuals of Mount Everest. The first one is you have to fly into Lukla Airfield right. from Kathmandu, and I always tell people sit on the left side of the airplane. <laughs> it's a mad rush to get to the left side because that's the side you will see Mount Everest from the flight in. If Mount Everest allows you to see her, sure. If she does, if she doesn't want you to see her. She'll be clouded over. But that's the first possibility of seeing Mount Everest up close. As it's and they're all small twin otters, Dornier two twenty eights. Um, you know, twin turboprops bring sure. it in there. So you fly in, you see Mount Everest as you're approaching the Lukla airfield. That's the first time you see it. And then you won't see it again for a few days until you've climbed up to a little village called Namshi Bazaar, just above the village right. is the first real panoramic view where you're standing on the ground. And you're probably five to six nautical miles um, straight on to Mount Everest. Wow. So that's the first time most people stop and say just that. Wow. That's the first wow moment where you're out in the universe. You're not in an airplane. You're standing across a valley and you can see parts of the Kumbu Glacier, but you're staring across at Mount Everest and all the other mountains in the range. And it's extraordinary. It's also quite small though, just because you're still five or six miles away from it. So it's, it's unique. It's massive, but it's at a distance. And then As you said, as you get closer and closer up to base camp, you're actually underneath Mount Everest. You Mm -hmm. can't really see it, but there's one day in your trek where you have to go up to the uh, Teng Boche Monastery. It's about 13,000 feet above sea level, or sorry, 13,000 feet MSL elevation. Right. At that elevation, you're now half the distance to Mount Everest at the same height you were prior when you saw it. And now Mount Everest is massive. It's. (laughs) Reasonably twice the size in terms of the view that you have, and then as you get up to base camp, you're underneath all of this. So right. You have zero zero view of Mount Everest, but you have a view of the ice fall and the Kumbu Glacier. But there is a, uh, I wouldn't call it a mountain. It's more of a big hill. It's called uh, Kalapatar, K A L A, yeah, P A T T A R. It's eighteen thousand one hundred feet MSL at, at its top. And as you go up Kalapatar, you are now only 10,000 feet below and maybe one mile away from Mount Everest. And it is the size of the Sears Tower. You're looking at this <laughs> massive granite monolith staring back at you. It's the, it's the most awe-inspiring, humbling experience ever to be in such close proximity to such a awesome force of nature like that. It's got
0: to be. I mean, what do, what do the locals call it? It's Chamalungma?
2: So, yeah, in the, the Nepalese side, it's oh, yeah. Um S-A-G-A-M-A-R-T-H-A, Sagamarta. And so we're actually trekking through the Sagamarta National Park. That's, and in Everest is a goddess, so yeah. it's a living de- living deity that they pray to and pray for. Yeah, the and mother and goddess, on the Tibetan, right? Yep. And on the mother earth, yeah, mother earth goddess. And on the Tibetan side, it's Chomolunga. Oh, amazing. And so... Yep. And so she's a a living goddess. Uh, She's prayed to everyone that goes up on the mountain, whether we're skydiving or mountain climbing. We have what's called a puja. It's a religious ceremony, a Buddhist ceremony, where we have a lama come down from uh, one of the monasteries. And it's essentially we're asking Mount Everest for permission to be there. We're stating that our intentions are pure and that we are asking for her, her protection, her guidance and her help. And it's, it's a social event. If we're having a puja of five or six people and our llamas and other locals are walking by, they will sit and they will join us. <laughs> um, part of the puja is we share Chang, which is a Nepali rice wine. You okay. know, uh, the, the lama brings down a, a carafe of Chang and we, we sip rice wine and we eat cookies and they throw rice in the air and it's light incense. It's just such a beautiful experience. You don't have to speak the language to understand the calming nature of what it is. And it's just really, it's a, ultimately a sign of respect. We're there out of respect and to for the promotion of Mount Everest, you know, for her her glory, not ours. Dude, that makes what, a, sense.
0: what a fucking ride you've been having.
2: <laughs> I mean, wow. You really... It's unbelievable, um, to, and we use the same. I like say we use. We have become friends with the same llamas for the last ten years. So they're basically every skydive has its own um, <laughs> la- its own llama team. And they come down, and we use the same ones every year. If you if you look on my Facebook page and scroll through some of my November photos, you'll see. Um, I just recently posted some of this last trip. These our, our llamas look forward to seeing us every year. We look forward to seeing them. They just have these big, beautiful smiles. Yeah, I saw um, the pictures.
0: The e- they were epic
2: the energy level that they bring. in. so this last trip, um, I was out there in May and I, I physically wasn't feeling great. Um, I, if you ever hear of people that when they say they're suffering from exhaustion, you know, that they check into like the Betty Ford clinic and stuff like that. Right. So I was coming back from somewhere. I think, ah, uh, where was I coming back from? I was coming back. I want to say China, something. And my legs started twitching. I started getting uncontrollable muscle spasms in my right leg and it just wouldn't stop. And it went on for like three days. My Mm -hmm. leg literally was shaking for three days and I thought, Oh my God, I broke something. (laughs) I don't, something's wrong inside my body. And so I went to the doctor and it turned out to be this thing called benign muscle fasculation, which is just no problem. It's just your body. The symptoms are exhaustion. Sure. I travel back and forth from time zones, constantly stress, the whole Atlas, uh, tandem thing, you know, the whole Atlas complex, the stress of what I do for a living. Um, and then on top of that, uh, depleted electrolytes, and that's just from running around, you know, skydiving, we burn electrolytes all the time. And so the corrective measure was rest. Relax and take electrolyte solutions, you know, but so i' I'm, I'm up in the mountain and I'm just now starting to feel better with with my leg and everything but i'm just completely i'm emotionally and physically and spiritually drained sure. at this point because i I've been running all over the world we had just gotten back from I think it was Australia actually on that last oceana project, and my my spirit was broken like I was just I love being me, but every once in a while i'm I'm human just like anybody else sure. and I just I just wanted to put my head in my hands and my hands on my knees and just breathe. <laughs> so we get up the mountain, we have our puja and the Lama starts in with his chanting and his intonations. And, uh, the, I tell you, Dean, the entire world was shut out for like 25 minutes of my life. Oh, wow. I didn't see or hear or think of anyone or All I could hear was his voice and the vibrations of his, the tone of his chanting. It was like passing through my body. Um, I found this inner peace and it was like, it restarted my engine, relit my torch, the, um, the stress, the exhaustion, everything just gone. And I stood up and it was almost like one of those movie scenes where like, you know, the the guy stands up and the camera pans around in 360 with the horizon. I just stood up at the end of it. And I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) I didn't realize how much I needed that, that moment of meditation with this. He doesn't speak English. I don't speak um, his native Nepalese. He completely cleansed my soul by sitting there listening to him. And so I went over to our interpreter and I was like, we've been working together for 10 years now. I need you to know that I came up here this afternoon with the lowest of physical and emotional and, and spiritual uh, gas tank that I've had in a long time. And you just completely changed everything for me. I am a new man right now. And thank you. Thank you. And so he explained it to him in in that language, and he just gave me a big smile and a big hug. And I was like, <laughs> that's my life is just so rewarding in that regard. You know, and it, I, I've been to probably 30 Pujas cause we do more than one. Usually if we have more than one project, sure. rep- and that was the most meaningful 20, 30 minutes of my life up there in the last, uh, you know, 12 years and these 15 or 16 trips, he really, like, I finally found like that moment where the tuning fork hit me and i am still, I can feel it even today. I still feel a thousand times better now than I did when I walked up the mountain see, what, as a result. of that,
0: What an amazing story to be able to tell and to be able to say that that is your seminal moment in 15 or 16 trips to Everest that include jumping out of a fucking helicopter over that mountain. That's pretty damn impressive.
2: I, I mean, know, right? Uh, you think about it, the, the the skydiving stuff's pretty awesome. It really is. And I could go on for days talking about that, but the the spiritual connection of the people and the region, it doesn't matter what religion you are. Catholic, Christian, Islam, Hindu, Buddhist, doesn't matter. When you're in that environment, I call it the force like Star Wars. Hmm. The, the energy in that part of the world, I don't know if it's because there's so much rock and granite and electricity passing through the ether, the the humanity of the people that live there. And truthfully, you can stand in front of these, these mountains and you can feel their energy, their presence, mm-hmm. whether you want to believe it's a, a goddess or simply an electromagnetic field, whatever it is, scientifically speaking or spiritually speaking, you can feel you're in the presence of an energy force. Sure. Well and it,
0: it forces it, a humility that most of us don't carry around on a daily basis.
2: Yep. And to be able to be in that energy field, in that energy source, live it and live with them, it's um yeah, that's more valuable than any of the skydives that I've ever made up there. And that's just on a personal evolution level. I've become I still identify myself as a Roman Catholic, but I also um Identify myself, believing in a number of the Buddhist philosophies. I wear a mala, which is essentially they would refer to that as a Buddhist rosary. It's the mala beads and mala seeds that they use for the chanting and they uh, keep track of the, the meditations and chants they do. Sure, um, being being able to absorb all of these um, and, and all of these different religious phil- philosophies and energies together in one place, it's just an extraordinary personal evolution. And I mean, I'm, as we're talking, I'm looking at a picture of myself falling over, um, on Everest cause I have it admittedly it's on my wall, in of my office, and it brings me right back to it. I'm talking to you here right now. Now, right now my head's in Nepal. My brain is talking to you from the Kumbu Valley, you know?
0: Ah, uh, I, but believe me, I'm, I'm, I, I literally can't, and I'm not one for, uh, for needing time to pass quickly. I'm fine with the pace that it goes. It already goes too damn fast most days, but I want November here so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I am chomping at the bit to get there to just let it all soak in. I guess and especially to, for for you to be able to do all these different things and now, just like your passion for for tandem, you get to do the same thing in regard to Everest and take this new experience and share it with people, which is incredible.
2: None of us thought we'd still be here 12 years later, and there's a reason we're still here. There's a business model for lack of a better term that, We don't prescribe to, but it does exist in the world, and that is Western resources going into remote locations. And for example, like tour groups, let's say that take a let's say let's say there's a company out of Los Angeles, call it Tom's Tours LA, and Tom's Tours LA finds the cheapest possible vendors in Nepal, and I charge all this money, and I bring all these people in from Los Angeles and. I hire the cheapest labor, pay the cheapest amounts, and I make a boatload of money, and I go home, and that's my job. Now, there's technically nothing wrong with that business model. People do it all over the world. But from our perspective, and it's it's a term I, I came up with, I call it social responsibility in adventure tourism. Mm. I will bring people into Nepal every year as long as I'm able to, but I will only do it by using Nepali assets. I will only do it by paying not just a a reasonable fee, but paying a a top fee to the locals for doing the things that we do. I put money into the economy there. My team, Wendy Smith, Omar El Hegelon, um, Paul Henry DeBar, Ryan Jackson. I mean, we put revenue into this country. We bring money into the country and it stays there. There's 30 employees of the company I work with, Explore Himalaya. We support them. We make sure that when we leave, the money stays with them. And when we go in there, we're not going in there to celebrate ourselves. And I think if you see a lot of the posts, uh, especially the ones I've done in the last few years, I will never say, Hey, look at me. I just set a world record, blah, 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 this, this, it's never about right. me. It's about Mount Kumbhila, the, the goddess of the Kumba region. It's about the goddess Everest. It's about my teammates. It's about the, one of my favorite posts recently is, um, I call him my Nepali top gun. His name is Deepak, uh, yeah. He's my B3 helicopter pilot. Cool. He is the most extraordinary pilot. You and I haven't met directly, first person yet, so I can say this. He is the most extraordinary pilot I've ever met in person in my life. Um, the way he flies is an art form, hmm. and I celebrate him every chance I get. You know, and that's that. That's the focus of our mission: is to celebrate the people in Nepal, celebrate the mountains, celebrate the humanity, the the culture, the the Nepali treasures that exist there and that those treasures are the people that's why we keep uh getting welcomed back and it's not just that we do it because we want to do it it's sincere they see that and they, they could have stopped us 10 years ago nope no more parachutes no more burning fossil fuels for skydiving but they love and look forward to us returning every year because everything we do we do to celebrate the Culture and the people of Nepal.
0: Well, and and uh, that mentality, especially nowadays, is so important. Uh, again, I, I became a bit of an Everest nerd just to, uh, ever since I read that book, and it became you know part of my bucket list. But uh, I know yep. that uh, it's a huge, huge problem, uh, more on the mountain climbing side, uh, especially with Everest, um, that the guides are paid next to nothing. Uh, and have no choice but to continue to put themselves in harm's way going up and down these mountains, carrying ridiculous amounts of gear that's unneeded for most of it, Um, you know, just to keep the Westerners with lots of money happy, and they aren't taken care of. So for you guys to go out of your way to make sure that it's the money is going there and staying there and they're being taken care of it has got to be very
2: rare over there, is it not? Well, more and more social awareness is occurring, and it, it, it's not just us. I think that maybe I'd like to think we might have led by example 10 years ago because we've been very vocal as a team and as an as organization about our intent and about how proud we are of, of only using the poly assets whenever we can and wherever we are. And I think over the last few years, we've seen more and more companies doing things like that over there. So maybe we had a ripple effect. I'm not really sure. But the economy itself is really peculiar. Uh, a skilled laborer, a carpenter, let's say, a, a standard daily wage is about $3 a day. <laughs> Five $500 a year is the average income for a skilled laborer. Now, they, they operate off of a separate economy a bottle of water I buy for $2, they'll buy that same bottle of water for 10 cents Sure. at the same, at the same store, you know, and, and that, that's okay. That's how the process works. Yeah. And where some of, some of the disparities occur is on one hand, you have to be careful to not over tip people because you, you hire a porter for literally $3 a day, which is a standard day rate. And then when you get to the, the location, you would tip them two or $3 as well. Sure. And from that, economy from that, um, that, that schedule or or that income level that sustains a normal lifestyle up there. But if someone tips them, say $20, that's essentially tipping somebody, you know, what's that a week and a half s pay, but but happily I would do it. If I had $20 in my pocket, I would happily do it. It would be worth tipping $50 given the work they do. Sure. But we have to be careful not to unbalance the economy either, because for someone who Makes five hundred dollars a year. If they get tipped fifty dollars, let's say, then potentially the next person that's going to want to offer that that job or take on that job, they, they're going to have problems with each other and problems with, almost like Uber and taxi cabs. Sure, you know how we have that problem between the two uh, different capacities of of um, service sure. providers. Sure. So, We always explain to people, we encourage tipping, tip proportionally to everything you do. And at the end, what's easy for us is we actually pool hundreds of dollars together at the end of our trips and give them to our our team leaders in Nepal and then allow them to disseminate that through the the company and through the team that they work with. That way, we're not accidentally adversely affecting their their internal economies. Sure.
0: Well, it's, I mean, just the, the, the intricacies of that have got to make the whole Everest experience pretty, I mean, pretty hard to to wrap your head around. But then when you toss in aviation and skydiving, I mean, the fact that Skydive Everest ever started is pretty incredible.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, in our first few years, we were jumping out of a Pilatus Porter Um, in 08, 09, 10 and 11, we had a Pilatus up there and eventually we lost access to that. And that's when we shifted over to the Eurocopter B3.
0: Wow. Wow. It's still just, I mean, the logistics of it have got to be insane.
2: It absolutely has to be, I mean, I hate to
0: say it, but it's got to be a nightmare because skydivers are like herding cats anyway, but now it's skydivers
2: in the Himalayas. (laughs) So I always tell people it's 11 months of hard work off the mountain for one more month of even harder work on the mountain. (laughs) Because it really is. It's a year long process of permits of equipment. I mean, I'm moving an entire drop zone from Florida to one of the most remote locations on earth in terms of equipment and personnel and um, aircraft and customers or guests and so on. And it is a tremendous amount of stress. I'm not embarrassed to say it, that When I get there, so I've been in charge of the program for probably the last six, I guess, going on six, seven years now. Mm. So. I'm personally responsible for the lives and safety of every staff member, every local employee I work with, and every guest that I bring out there. And that's a lot of responsibility, especially when you're living in the mountains together for 2 weeks. You have to tend to every need and it's not just skydiving injury potentials, it's altitude sickness, it's food sickness, it's um injury from trekking, turning and falling and breaking an ankle or something, you know, there's always stresses. Sure. And so unfortunately the only downside that I have to to kind of deal with. And I I say it reluctantly because ultimately it's a privilege to do it. When I go there, I'm a different person. Unfortunately, sometimes like I can't be the fun, fun, loving, happy, social butterfly that I might be here in Florida. You know, the guy that's just great to hang out with. I have to be responsible for the organization, the operation, the safety. So I miss out on a lot of the fun. Like, you know, the customers, I send the staff and the guests out to the uh, go sightseeing. And I sit back at the office and make sure the logistics of the gear transfer was correct and that the oxygen cylinders are filled, and that we have all the things we need. So I, I carry a tremendous amount of stress on my shoulders the whole time I'm up there. <laughs> yeah. And I still try to find time to have fun, and I still allow myself moments of calm and, and enjoy it and be, be appreciative of it. But I've had this um, ritual, if you want to call it that. You're going to laugh. There's a song <laughs> by Daughtry called Home.
0: Okay. Yeah, I know it.
2: Okay. So when I go off to Nepal, it's like the furthest place off the map for me. It's one of them. You know, you're so far away from home and it's daunting to think about being away for a month, you know, away from my girlfriend who I love and away from my friends and family. And I'm heading out into the mountain on this massive project that I'm responsible for all these people, their happiness, their safety, their success. And if something goes wrong, it's all going to get put back on me yeah and I go through I go through my month um up before the sun is up I'm last one to sleep at night, you know doing things at two o'clock in the morning. I get on the plane in Kathmandu. It's usually a um a three twenty the door shut the door shuts, so the door closing and it's one of those uh, that you walk up the steps they don't have jetways, so you sure. walk up the steps you get on the a three twenty I sit in my seat, I get a window seat. The door shuts. I put my sunglasses on and I play home from Daughtry. And I literally just like burst into tears, (laughs) not like I'm crying because I'm sad. It's just like this whole month's worth of tension that has been built up inside my body. I just got everybody home safely and happy. They're all now back in their own worlds. Like they're responsible. Once they've left Kathmandu, their safety is now their responsibility again. And I carry this stress with me for four plus weeks every november every year and it just you know it builds up and it's it's the like tears of joy just like the stress and rushing out of my body yeah. and the people that sit next to me must think that i'm just having a meltdown because i have my sunglasses on it's usually 11 o'clock at night because <laughs> i take an evening flight out and just these tears just start running down my face <laughs> and i'm like i'm going home i made it through another one everybody's happy everybody's safe i'm on my way home to my girlfriend. And I get eleven months to prepare myself to come back and do this again, you know, <laughs> and i'm I'm not embarrassed by it, you know that's just like that's my coping mechanism for managing such a large ball of stress for such yeah. a long period of time. No,
0: and I can completely understand what it, it, that that's a very natural release for it all, to just let it go. I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of someone that's sitting next to you, watching this yeah. rather <laughs> large adult bearded man sit yeah. down and just burst into sobbing tears.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. It really is. <laughs> Um, and, you know, and I'm not embarrassed by it. it. It's just, it is what it is, but it, it's been that way now for going on, you know, six or seven years. And the first time it happened, we were out there for five weeks. Oh, wow. And there was just so many people I was responsible for. And so that the, I couldn't see the finish line the day I got there. It just seemed like it was a lifetime away for me. Sure. And cy- psychologically, the stress of that. And I, and I don't think I've ever actually opened up about this. Dean, I, you know, I think you're the first person that I've ever actually shared my, my, uh, emotional weakness side of this, if you want to call it that. So this is the first time I've ever opened up to anybody about that. Um, but it's cathartic. It's good. It's good to share it because it's not all hero stuff and, and, you know, every, everything is just bounces off your shoulder. Interestingly enough, you know, you take 15 people, put them in paradise and they're going to have problems with each other. Take the same 15 people and put them in one of the most remote locations on earth. Those problems are going to, Multiply by a factor of a hundred, you know? Oh, yeah. so it's not just safety, it's personal issues. It's taking care of people's needs, constantly putting out little fires, making sure nobody gets voted off the island, so to speak. Um, oh. it's yeah, it's a constant sunrise to sunset um, emotional challenge to be able to maintain maintain everyone else's well-being, and at the end of the day, taking five minutes to do your own personal inventory of how you're doing. How are you sure. feeling? because I can't get sick up there. I can't have a meltdown. Anybody else can have a meltdown, but I can't. So, so I have to allow them.
0: You've never been up there for in any other capacity than for Skydive Everest. So you've never just been a tourist?
2: Correct. It's only been Everest Skydive from day one. And admittedly, now I do take some Tom time, as I call it. When we get done, uh, one of my teammates, Paul Henry, he's really been um, – He's been a, a lifesaver for me in telling me that we really need to start planning extra time to rest and recoup after we're done before we move on to the next project. So mm. I'm now starting to spend a little bit more quality time. It used to be as soon as the program was over, I was and the last person was out. I was on the following airplane out right after them to get back to work. But now I'm OK with taking a couple of days to just rest and recover and and uh, allow myself to just kind of emotionally and, and spiritually heal before I go on to the next project.
0: Well, and to get to see all the things that you're taking all this time to show other people. I mean, it sounds to me like I'm going to see a vastly different Nepal and Everest than you ever have, because I'm literally going to get there and spend three or four weeks just not dying.
2: Yes. That's it. Correct. You'll We'll see it differently. Yep. But we've been up there so long now that I've been able to piece together. I realized that over 13 <laughs> years now, I've been able to piece together a vacation out of that 13 years, you know, one trip into Pokhara where we were weathered out and I had a few days where I could just sit by a lake and get on a paddle boat, you know, or one trip we, um, we had a, we finished early. So we took a whitewater rafting trip halfway, you know, four hours from Kathmandu. So I've had all the great experiences that the tourists have. I just have them in very small compartmentalized pieces. Sure. I don't, I, I haven't had a two week vacation there. I've had two weeks over 10 years right. that I've been able to piece together. <laughs> yeah. Um, moments. Vacation.
0: Yeah. Which is, which I mean, still is ridiculously incredible. Not to mention you've got the pride of, of having passed this on to so many people. Uh, you know, when I knew I was going to be going, you were one of the first people I wanted to talk to because I figured if anybody could tell me anything about Nepal and Everest, it was going to be you.
2: And I appreciate that. And you know, I, what I am most proud of, and I, I say this to anyone and everyone, what I am most proud of is that we could have, and I say we, meaning myself, Wendy Smith, uh, Derek Thomas, Omar, in the beginning, we could have said, you know what, this is ours. It's sure. just us, you know, and in a way, almost even like justified, you know, this is our little piece of the world and we're not going to let anybody in, Right. I'm looking at two pictures right now. Ernesto Gainza, um, Mike McCann, Derek Pablito. Um, <laughs> and Fred Omar. Jean-Pierre. Yep. So we've shared Omar, Wendy Smith. Um, we've shared the, the experience of Nepal with so many people. And we continue to do that. And that's me. My office is full of photos of all my friends. And not, and not just old friends, but new friends that I met through Everest Skydive. All the people that we've shared this with, I've personally been able to share this Everest experience with, you know, over a hundred people, whether it's up at our high altitude drop zone or whether it's our lower altitude drop zone. Right now I'm in communication with Greg Shelton and Sabi um, to get them out to Pokhara to do tandems with me in November. You know, I asked you if you were, I asked you if you were current on tandems, you know, for that very reason. Sure. I'm most proud of the fact that we've, over the last 12 or 13 years, been able to share this project with so many people and so many have gone on to say that it's changed their lives um, in a a positive way, but that it's really, um, it's been a labor of love. I drive an eight-year-old car. I don't make any money off of this. (laughs) It's not like we're making a ton of money, even though it's so expensive. I reinvest all of our, our profits, if you will. Back into making it accessible to more and more people. Sure. And I think that's what I'm most proud of is that we didn't keep it all for ourselves. We didn't say, you know what, we fell into this, we were lucky, let's protect it and keep it our own. Nope, we've got hundreds of people that have been up there, have shared the experience, that have lived what we live, and it pays itself forward. You know, uh, you meet more extraordinary people that way. And some of the cool projects that we're doing now are because we've met cool people that we brought up to Everest and shared our experience with.
0: Absolutely. Well, and it, it, it's kind of funny. Skydiving obviously is still a very uh, young sport. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, I've been in it 25 years and I've seen dramatic changes throughout that time. Um, but it's, it's almost, um, it's it's very very normalized. Uh, people aren't shocked anymore when they find out that you skydive either for fun or for work or anything like that. But to take it to a different level to these uh, destination skydives, like the Big Blue Hole or Everest or over the pyramids, um, just kind of elevate the entire sport as well uh, and make what is already an amazing experience for so many people even that much more so. So to be able to take a, a skydiver that's got you know ten or fifteen thousand jumps and blow their socks off is a very difficult thing to do, but I'm guessing throwing him out of an airplane over the top of Everest gets pretty damn close.
2: <laughs> you know? So the greatest compliment we ever got was from Bill Booth. Um, and so in 2012, we brought him up with us. Now mm. Bill's jumped the North pole probably 10 or 12 times. Um, he's jumped all over the world in remote locations. I mean, literally the Indiana Jones of skydiving. And when we brought him up to uh, Nepal, I was nervous. He wasn't my boss yet, but he was still Bill Booth. Sure. And the idea that I didn't want him to have a bad time. Cause that could, you know, that would be something I would take personally and sure. that stress of making sure that he's um, happy when he landed, he said it was the greatest experience of his, his skydiving career. I mean, the, how amazing is that the program that we gave Bill and he got the cover of parachutist. I have that up on my wall <laughs> here at work. Um, he got the cover of parachutist out of parachutist out of it. Um, Of all the things he's done in his extraordinary adventure skydiving career, he said that his time with us and specifically me on that program that we brought him up to Everest was the greatest uh, program he'd ever been on. So for that kind of validation, I knew we were doing something right.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, the first time that I heard about Scott Everest, I was blown away. And then, of course, for you guys to continue on and and uh, uh, the number of Facebook friends I have now that have shared the experience with you, I live vicariously through these pictures and you're just floored by it. It's absolutely, it's an incredible thing. It really, really is. I mean, you guys should be ridiculously proud of that achievement. And quite frankly, all of your achievements in Scott I mean, um, to be able to work as hard as you do for everything in the sport and then still take take time for basically a a zero sum game like skydive everest for you and put that much into it is pretty fucking incredible
2: it really is it's a labor of love for sure but i'm also admittedly i'm the luckiest kid in the world to be doing what i'm doing at 45 years old and you know people occasionally and, and i i'll say it with the um with the most delicate of touch i'm told from time to time how lucky i am you know, mm. people see what i do and they say and, and i accept that and i thank them for that but the truth is it's really a, a equal parts opportunity and hard work sure you know to be able to have opportunities presented to you is is certainly in part based on concepts like luck, but once the opportunity has presented itself to you, the equal portion of hard work that you have to put into it. And I failed at as many projects as I've succeeded at, I have like a mad scientist list of other things that I'm still working on in terms of halo projects and other, um, interesting skydiving things that have just fallen by the wayside. Cause there just isn't enough time in the day. Sure. So I always just say that, yes, I'm, I'm blessed to have been put in a position. I don't like the word luck. I prefer blessed. I'm blessed to have been put in a position to exercise opportunity and hard work. Absolutely. Well, you know, and
0: and I'm guilty of using the word luck quite a lot too, because I, I think a lot of us that are, uh, I'm going to use it again. A lot of us are lucky enough to be in our position. Um, uh, know how truly you know blessed or lucky whatever word you want to use are so yeah. uh, i'm sure you're the same i have more friends than i can count that think they've got the best job in the world the best life yep. going in the world which is how it's supposed to be you know i mean what's what's an amazing life for one person wouldn't be for the next so i'm happy i found by far my best life it's it's an incredible thing to be able to say you've got and more skydivers seem to have that mentality than pretty much any other large group of people i've met of course, I don't know that many people that aren't skydivers.
2: Right. <laughs> That's the one downside. Really, we don't know anybody because no one else wants to talk to us. Yeah.
0: No, no. we we uh, We are definitely a, a unique breed. We're even a bit of a unique breed when it comes to extreme sports, which is a bit of a badge of honor. They think we're a little bit more off the rails, which is fine by me. So- uh, as we uh, uh, taper towards the end, I want to know how do people find out about Skydive Everest? What websites do they need to go to? How do they find out about your training courses and the stuff you're doing with UPT? Where social media-wise should people be looking for, for you and what you've got going on?
2: So I've got my catch-all email address for everything I do on my personal projects is skydiveearth at gmail.com. And that's also at the end of all the videos on my Facebook page, skydiveearth at gmail.com. So anytime someone's expressing interest in any of the projects that I'm working on, whether it's ever skydive, any of the other seven continent things that we're doing, just shoot me an email there and I can respond. Um, If I don't respond right away, it's only because I, unfortunately, my one biggest flaw as a human being is I've got probably at any time I carry about 100 emails unread in my email account (laughs) because there's so much stuff coming in. Uh, but that is my email access for that. Um, our website is www.everest-skydive.com. Somebody back in 2005 bought everestskydive.com and they won't sell it to us. So we are Everest dash, you know, like the minus sign, everest-skydive.com. All of our contact information's on there. Our contact form is there as well. For UPT stuff tandem, it's tom at uptvector.com. That's my work email for uh, for work. I've established a couple of different Facebook groups. One of them is um, most recent project. I just got 2000 tandem skydivers together on a Facebook page called Sigma tandem instructor, Edu- educational resources. So if you are a Sigma tandem instructor, whether you have our rating or not, if you're jumping Sigmas in Mexico or in Finland or anywhere in the world, and you need guidance or need information, join that group. I'm on it daily. So I communicate around the world with people, make sure they have all the information they need. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Fucking hell, man! That's uh, it's just busy listening to all the ways to get a hold of you. <laughs> I just I just got dizzy telling you all that. I need to sit down.
0: Yeah, holy shit! Usually it's a, yeah, catch me on this website, but no, no, man, oh man, you're <laughs> you're just as there's busy. There's going a
2: point. There's going to come a point in our lives, Dean, where we're going to be sitting back in our 60s and thinking back about all the amazing things we've done in our in our lives, and one thing we're not going to regret is that we didn't put our best foot forward as often as we could and as uh, many times as we could. Oh, no, no. Well, and,
0: and like you said, you've, you've got uh, just as many failures as successes, but uh, those failures are, are the reason that you have the successes as well. So pushing that yep. hard, even when it's not necessarily going to work, is how you learn the most valuable lessons for sure. Exactly. Well, Tom, I'll tell you what, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to, to talk to me about everything. And you can expect a shitload of uh, Facebook Messenger questions on Everest as, as that starts to I, creep in.
2: I almost feel like I should apologize. I know it's a podcast, but I've talked your ear off for like two hours now. So I'm no, actually... <laughs>
0: That was the plan, man. That was absolutely the plan. Believe me, I would have made the entire thing just me asking, all right, fuck, what do I need to do with this? And <laughs> where do I go for that? And what kind of, yeah. But they don't want to hear me ask what kind of socks or long underwear I need.
2: So well, so I actually have two YouTube videos up on my YouTube channel. Of course, uh, you do. <laughs> Tom Noonan. Yeah. My, my YouTube channel, I've got uh, Everest Base Camp Trekking Packing, uh, Volume 1 and Volume 2. So you can go look on there. The, the shortest answer is. Buy everything at Walmart. Don't go buy a hundred dollar pair of Patagonia underpants. Buy the five dollar uh, ones from Walmart. You'll save all that money to bring home souvenirs while you're in uh, Nepal.
0: Awesome. Oh, I'm definitely gonna watch those. Watch those two videos. Do You have a YouTube channel?
2: Yeah. Yes. Um, I I think it's just Tom Noonan. Okay. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah. I think it is Tom Noonan. That's it. So all my my um, my packing videos are on there, and all my ever uh, skydive Earth videos and things are on there as well.
0: Oh, awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to have to go check it out for nothing else, just the trekking stuff, but
2: dude. Yeah. And if you want to link any of those to your podcast and you publish it, you're welcome to do that as well. I'm obviously passionate about what I do. Um, Anytime somebody asks me to tell them something about it, I go, how committed are you to the answer? <laughs> get, get comfortable.
0: <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Well, I'm going to want right. to touch base with you uh, continuing on down the road because I know you've got so many more projects that I'm definitely going to want to hear about. So continued success on everything that you've got going on. And don't forget, I got to get a picture of the the Lord of the Three Rings poster.
2: Absolutely. Thanks, Dean. It's oh. been a privilege to talk to you. I hope it was of some value and entertainment. Uh, it was
0: fantastic, Tom. Thank you so much. All
2: right. You're welcome, brother.
0: And there you have it, another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you as always by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com by Pussfoot. That's right. Head to Pussfoot.com, the extreme sports collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com Check out all the amazing standards as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on youtube that's right you're gonna have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to youtube.com and looking up the lunatic fringe podcast it's easy hit the like button hit the subscribe button check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had as well as new and upcoming interviews on video as always i am the fucking pilot head to the fucking pilot.net or the princess thanks for joining we'll see you next time around